Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. The ripples of fate have reached their furthest limits, and another great chapter in the saga of Malifaux is about to come to a close. But never fear, there are plenty more tales from Malifaux to be told. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of Ripples of Fate, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Jeremiah's Salvage Yard. We specialise in scrap metal, steam fittings and raw materials stripped from the wreckage of the Majestic. This is your chance to own a piece of the late Governor General's own flagship. May he rest in peace. Act now before the wreck has been stripped like a corpse picked clean by vultures in the Badlands. The carriage rolled to a halt and the guardian stepped aside, letting them climb out of opposite doors and step down their separate sides of the carriage. Essie's eyes scanned the gloomy outline of the majestic, and she balled her hands into fists to keep them from shaking. She had never seen the landship in its brief glory days before it was destroyed, but she had seen pictures and heard plenty of stories. In truth, it was difficult to reconcile the wrecked thing ahead of her as the gleaming metal juggernaut that had once cowed settlement after settlement into renewed obedience of the guild's will. It was hard to make a coherent mental picture of it at all. She kept seeing the enormous shattered machine in pieces, a crooked set of giant treads here, a pockmarked metal skirt there. The landship was a crooked, leaning silhouette against the darkening night sky, its lines distorted by darkness and the internal explosion that had finished it off. Essie was so intent on scanning the area for movement that she didn't even notice the woman standing on the Majestic's blast-skewed rear deck, her hands folded demurely on the railing as she looked down at them. Her hair was long and dark, but her eyes were hidden behind a pair of spectacles that reflected in the moonlight. Hello, Charles. Come for your brother, I take it. Hoffman's movements were smoother now, almost graceful as he stepped forward. The guardian protecting him kept pace, ready to interpose its shield between him and the necromancer at a moment's notice. Yes, I have. Anna Lovelace, I presume. She nodded her head. I assumed that it would just be a matter of time before you showed up to collect poor Ryle. I really was surprised, you know. I thought he had died in the breach accident. Imagine my surprise when I opened a newspaper in Bristol and saw a photograph of the monster you turned him into on the front page. She began walking along the railing, keeping one hand on its surface. I didn't know for sure, of course. It wasn't until I lured him here and removed his faceplate that I knew for certain. It still took me a few moments, of course, what with the state of decay his face is in these days. Hoffman's face was twisted in equal parts pain and rage. If you return him to me, 
You can still walk away from this, Miss Lovelace. I don't care about whatever it is you're doing out here. I only want my brother. Oh, no. I don't believe I'll be doing that at all. She shook her head in the manner of a disappointed schoolteacher. After everything he stole from me, can you imagine what a thrill it is to have him obedient to my every wish? The great Ryle Hoffman finally brought low was a... She was interrupted by a shout of anger, but surprisingly it came from Essie and not Hoffman. Anna barely had time to register the danger before the electrical bolt struck her raised arm in a flash of bright light. In that illuminated moment, they could both make out the elaborate dress she wore, a clockwork sculpture of dark, dull metal that encapsulated her arms and torso before expanding into a series of bell-like hoops below her hips. Hoffman cast a surprised glance towards Essie and her outstretched hand. Essie just shrugged. I hate monologues. Anna cursed and flung herself into an open hatch as a large shape reared up from some nearby wreckage. It was twice Essie's height, and was no single corpse, but a collection of them in one, segments of a human torso stapled and strung together along steel cables. It was topped with a human head, stripped almost to the bone, but with its eyes still intact and wobbling behind crude steel caging. Its arms were bundled of severed human arms, harnessed together and somehow working in dreadful coordination. The arms ended at the wrists, where their hands had been replaced with heavy spiked chains. Above it, through the landship's upper windows, more creatures appeared. Their once-human bodies hacked apart and recombined into hideous jigsaws with salvaged engine parts and scrap metal. Some swung ape-like down the pitted metal side of the wreckage. Others scampered down it headfirst like lizards or spiders, and some limply leapt from windows and landed on the ground with echoing clangs. Hoffman was already in motion, striding toward the deck, his graceful lope a weird echo of the hunter pacing alongside him. The Guardian kept pace beside him, moving with a smooth choreography that Essie had never seen before in constructs. On the other side of her, she heard a hiss of steam and saw the peacekeeper charging toward the towering undead monstrosity as the warden followed up behind it. Then her vision was blocked out as the guardian nearest her swung its shield in front of her face. A moment later something clanged off the metal, heavily enough to knock the guardian's arm backward for a moment. Essie flinched back by reflex as the guardian stepped toward the undead thing that leapt down at her from the wreckage. It was a pot-bellied corpse with its dead lips stretched into a grin and cleaver blades grafted to the stumps of its forearms. Its legs were half curled under it in a complex mesh of springs, cables and struts. Essie's nose filled with a sickly stink of it as it tried to scramble up and slash at her legs. The Guardian knocked it back with a kick, then swept its shield around, sending the dead creation flying backward. It slammed into the side of the Majestic, slid to the ground, and started to stand up again, but Essie finished it off by flinging a bolt of white-hot electricity at it, electrocuting rotting flesh and delicate machinery alike. She caught a movement to her left, and turned as a second undead thing launched into a high leap off the landship's railing, but the Guardian was quicker than she was, and split it in two mid-air. It fell apart in a gush of foulness, its rusty spiked fingertips scrabbling at the gravelly ground. Nearby, two more of the undead horrors vaulted down onto the peacekeeper, clawing for a weak point. It tilted to the side, exposing them to the warden at its side, who slammed its restraint claw against each one in turn smashing them between its steely fist and the peacekeeper's outer shell. Essie motioned for the Guardian to move forward, and as she advanced under the cover of her shield, she saw one of the creatures leap straight at Hoffman, 
but the crack of her firearm pierced the sounds of fighting and killed the abomination in the air. Hoffman's little construct attendant was standing on the roof of the carriage, extending a spindly limb that terminated in a pistol mount. Even with the assistance from the attendant, Hoffman was in trouble. He was at the centre of a churning brawl between his guardian, his hunter, and a mob of mechanised zombies. They were circling and ducking, trying to get past the guardian to reach him with a rusty snipper claw or sharpened hook. As she watched, one ducked a lethal sword swipe and clambered onto Hoffman's walking frame like a child trying for a piggyback ride from an unwilling parent. Strapped into the frame, Hoffman had no escape, but a moment later the dead thing convulsed madly on his shoulders as its metal joints locked up. It fell to the ground, where the Guardian smashed it into pieces beneath its heavy steel foot. There was no way through to him that Essie could see. She blasted another of the creatures that drew close to her with lightning, but the thought of being swarmed over and picked apart for pieces was unbearable. The shower of sparks lit up the darkness as one of the undead creatures drove its drill arms into the shield of her guardian, anchoring itself on it as it tried to reach for the construct's head. The guardian tried beating the abomination with its sword, but it was lodged on there too tightly. Essie stepped forward to deal with it, but then it opened its jaws, and a bright yellow-white light blazed out. The thing had the nozzle of a gas torch set in its mouth where a tongue had been. It leaned into the guardian's face as if for a kiss, melting its helmet-like head into hot slag. The destroyed guardian teetered for a moment, and with a flash of inspiration, Essie threw her shoulder into its back, pushing it forward and onto the scrambling creature who was still stuck in its shield. To her right, the peacekeeper was engaged in a brutal battle with the giant undead amalgamation. The undead giant had torn a forelimb off the hulking construct and had its chains wrapped around the machine's chimney pipes. The peacekeeper was clawing at it with its remaining arm, and the warden was at its side, brutally pummeling the giant's side with its large restraint claw. Esther! It was Hoffman calling out to her. He had pulled his goggles down over his eyes and was wielding a glowing torch in one hand, its head a dazzling white spark in the gloom. As she watched, he jammed the torch into the eye socket of one of the creatures, and in the pulsing streak of the afterimage it left across her vision, she saw the thing's head glow like a lampshade. Smoke curled from its ears and mouth, and it sagged and collapsed. Go after her, Esther. Find Ryle. Find him and help him, but be careful. Essie took off toward the landship, electrocuting two more of the scrambling undead creatures as she reached the remains of a ladder, jumped up to catch the bottom rung, and pulled herself steadily upward toward the rear deck. As she was gaining on the top, she felt a jolt as something grabbed onto it from below, and turned to look down, electricity already crackling across her fingers as she prepared to blast the overeager abomination. Instead of a rotting visage staring back at her, however, she saw the rounded top of Hoffman's attendant climbing up the ladder with fussy, insect-like precision. With a shake of her head, she climbed the rest of the way up and then helped the attendant over the railing. Still doesn't trust me enough to go alone, eh? She smirked at the machine, which just stared back at her blankly. If you were human, that would have been endearing. Come on. She could see the open hatch that Anna had retreated into and darted toward it, the mechanical attendant clambering behind her as quickly as it were able. Ralph Hoffman had to be in here somewhere. If nothing else presented itself, she at least wanted the satisfaction of wiping a certain haughty expression off a certain pale, chilly face. The hatch led to a short metal compartment like that of a steamship, 
but the bulkheads were ribbed with heavy steel struts, and everything was coated in a fine grit that Essie hoped wasn't human ashes. There was a sickly greenish-white light ahead of her, but she still moved down the passage more by touch than sight. Essie knew better than to trust an apparently open passageway. She had built any number of alarms and deadfalls for arcanist compounds, but none of that prepared her for the howl that came out of thin air in front of her face. She staggered backward as the howl dropped into a hissing snarl and something clutched at Essie's neck. The chill took the strength from her legs and she fell against the wall, sliding down it. She could see something now, the faintest outline of half a human form made of misty light, withering from the belly down into a meaningless twist of corpse glow. The whole foul shape jerked like a captive balloon, waxing and waning between a bare skeleton and a full-fleshed corpse in a rhythm like breathing. There was an echoing report as the mechanical attendant behind her fired off a salvo of bullets at the thing, followed by the clang of those bullets ricocheting off the walls of the narrow hallway and zipping past her head. No bullets, she shouted back at the attendant as she scrambled away from the spirit. Her hand and knee hit something in the gloom, and as low as she was to the ground, she could hear the faint tick and click of clockwork gears. A filthy chill touched the back of her neck as the spirit wrapped its insubstantial hands around her. On instinct, Essie hammered at the sound, felt something break like bone, and hammered harder. The ticking faltered, and the wraith above her moaned. Essie grabbed at the source of the ticking, shoved her hand as deep into it as she could manage, and turned away as she unleashed her magic into the heart of the device, frying it out in a bright white flash of electricity. The sound died and with a burst of foul air from above her, the grip on her neck vanished. There goes the element of surprise, she muttered, as she pulled herself up to her feet. In the flash of light, she'd seen a glimpse of a clockwork array, covered in etched and painted symbols, wired to a human ribcage and skull. She kicked the apparatus in disgust, motioned for the attendant, and walked forward. The greenish-white light she'd seen from the end of the passage came from half a dozen lanterns, all floating about in mid-air with a stately disregard for gravity. Each had been secured to a little metal tray underneath it, in which mechanisms twirled, crackled, and glowed, producing the light or flight of both. The space they lit up was a gloomy cavern that made up the guts of the Majestic. To Essie it looked like some titanic explosion had eviscerated the landship, leaving its corpse with this hollow heart. Looking up, she could see layers of crumpled metal and dark openings where the great machine's internal levels had been blown away by the explosion. She shivered as the attendant clicked its way up to stand beside her. A dozen paces away stood a scorched and splintered wooden desk and a leather-upholstered chair that had no doubt been salvaged from some other compartment. Anna Lovelace stood at the desk, directly under one of the floating lamps briskly loading books and papers into a battered gladstone bag held open by a swaying corpse in a dirty and bloodied convict's uniform. Strangely, the clockwork dress she wore did not drag or hang from her, but seemed to float around her, as though it was suspended from an invisible crane that moved it weightlessly around with its owner. A handful of other zombies stood around Anna, dressed in the same convict uniforms, or in the red and grey of the guild guard, all of them holding sacks and trunks. Echoes of the battle outside reverberated in through the open ceiling. For a moment, Essie thought that the commotion in the passage had gone unnoticed, until Anna turned, still with the same eerie, weightless grace, and made the tiniest gesture with her arm. 
There was a chorus of clicks and crackles as the motion aligned the components of her dress just so. And there Nessie's feet left the floor. She hung in space for a second, eyes wide and arms windmilling, and then shot backwards, wailing in surprise. The same force had snagged Hoffman's attendant, and together the two of them were sent crashing into the far wall and then onto the misshapen metal floor. Essie gripped at her side, wincing in pain. She was certain that at least one of her ribs were broken. I don't intend to risk everything I've worked for in a fight to the death, Anna told her, as emotionlessly as if she were noting the time. Consider that payback for the lightning bolt. She motioned to her zombies, sending them and the luggage they carried down the shattered hallway, away from Essie. There was a gunshot from the mechanical attendant at her side, and a bullet chimed off Anna's metal sleeve and punched through the heavy book she'd just picked up. Behind her elegant rimless glasses, Anna's eyes narrowed. She gestured toward the persistent machine, but this time, instead of flinging it backward, the little construct was strung up in the air in a screaming vortex of spectral arms and jaws that ripped at its casing and wrenched at its limbs. The phantom spun faster and faster until they coalesced, forming a lashing serpentine body that constricted its coils around the intendant's battered casing. It crashed to the floor, rolling and struggling with its ghostly attacker, and then Anna's clockwork dress whirred again, catapulting it up through the ceiling and out of sight. Essie hadn't watched it go. What she'd been watching instead was Anna's dress. While her position within the Union was primarily a fictional cover for her arcanist activities, she was still a steam fitter and she'd been watching the way the dress floated around her and thrummed with mechanical power each time Anna drew upon its power. Whenever she gestured with her arm, the moving parts in the skirt accelerated to a blur, which meant that the power generator had to be housed somewhere else, most likely in the small of her back, just above her hips. It was the only place where a generator that strong could fit. She pulled herself up into a crouch, still clutching her side. Wait! Essie winced in pain at the shout, punctured lung then too. What about Royal Hoffman? Is he even still here, or was was that all just empty boasting? Anna paused, arm already stretched out toward Essie, and then lowered it as she smirked. Oh no. She glanced at something in the distance and made a come here gesture with her hand. Ryle, please come here. Essie could hear slow, ponderous footsteps growing louder, and then the hulking brute from the photograph stepped into the green-white light. Its flesh was pale and sheened in dirt, riven with seams and bright metal studs, but firm and unrotting. Its arms terminated in weapons, one a military model Gatling gun, and the other a powerful steel claw. For a moment, Essie thought they were in mounts fitted over the thing's hands, until she saw the livid scar tissue along the boundary of flesh and metal. The creature's face was a mangled and scarred mess, and despite looking for it, she saw no resemblance between its twisted visage and that of Charles Hoffman. You see, he's all mine now. Anna turned toward Ryle, as if to admire her trophy. In the instant that she exposed the back of her dress, Essie shouted and poured everything she had into a burst of lightning, aiming it right at what she could only guess was the suit's power regulators. The bolt struck home with a brilliant flash of light, 
the power flooding into the clockwork dress power systems and overloading them in a single instant. Anna screamed as she and Ryle both lurched a dozen feet into the air, fell halfway back down, and then hung suspended in the air, tilting from side to side. There was a rattling flurry and a thump of imploding air as everything near her was dragged upward toward her, and for a moment Anna hung at the center of a miniature solar system of orbiting books, tools, and junk. Essie's ears popped as the ball of compacted air around the other woman boomed back out, and then the litter crashed back to the floor along with Anna and Ryle. They had no sooner hit the ground than Essie was in motion, pushing aside the agony in her chest as she snatched up a fallen metal bar and wound up to bring it down on the other woman's head. Anna's eyes widened in surprise, and she flicked a finger toward Ryle, who lifted his Gatling gun and unleashed a deafening salvo of bullets into Essie's chest. There was a brief sensation of intense pain, and then falling. Essie didn't even feel herself hit the floor. She tried to gather enough energy for another blast of electricity, but her fingers just twitched in the growing pool of blood beneath her. Everything seemed to be rushing in on her, and the world quickly faded to darkness. Hoffman had arrived just in time to watch his brother murder Essie. He had been following her progress through the eye of his mechanical attendant as his constructs battled with the undead outside. He had seen Anna draw upon the mechanisms in her clockwork dress to create a minor gravity well, and had seen her summon terrifying spirits from another world before she tossed the attendant out of the ceiling. He could still feel it on the fringes of his perception, dragging itself to him with this one remaining arm. He knew that Essie was in danger without his protection, but he hadn't been able to get there in time. He had tried. He had failed. His walking frame stomped into the room as Anna and Ryle pushed themselves to their feet. His fists were clenched tight at his sides, and cords were standing out on his neck. You monster. It was unclear which of them he was addressing. His brother's face was vacant. The scar tissue on Ryle's face looked different from when Hoffman had last visited his brother's sleeping cell and helped clean him. Now it was darker, tinged with grey, more ridged, and it seemed to stretch further over Ryle's face. His eyes were sunk deeper into their sockets, and there were odd geometrical patterns of scars up his ribs and hips that Hoffman didn't remember. They weren't battle wounds, but he couldn't think of a surgical purpose for them. What did you do to him? I improved him, Anna explained as she checked the servos in her dress's arm. He stole my work and had me discredited by the university so that nobody would listen to my complaints about his thievery. Now the work that he so desperately wanted is part of him. Don't you find the irony amusing? Charles stomped forward, feeling out the mechanisms of her dress with his mind, letting their contours sink into his perception like displaced water in a basin. Despite his anger, he had to admit that it was a beautiful piece of work. There would be nights when he would lose sleep trying to remember what he had sensed here, yearning to recreate it. My brother was brilliant. He didn't need to steal anything from a two-bit tinkerer like you. He knew that the insult was inappropriate. She had created something truly marvellous in that dress. But he needed to buy time as he felt along its mechanism and worked out the underlying principles which made it function. Anna's eyes twitched as she stepped toward him, her hand raised. Ryle, shoot him. 
Hoffman had been expecting Anna to draw upon the power of her dress, and was prepared to stop such a thing from happening. He hadn't given any thought to the idea that Ryle would attack him. It was inconceivable. Yet, as he saw Ryle bringing up his Gatling gun, Hoffman instinctively reached out with his mind and seized control of his brother, forcing the already spooling barrels to lock into place. And then his eyes widened in horror at what he'd just done. No. His power only extended to machines. Not to living creatures. Not to people. The full enormity of the past four years hit him like a crashing wave, and a terrible revelation gathered like a storm at the edge of Hoffman's awareness. There had always been hints that his brother was still in there somewhere, that he and Ramos had saved some fraction of Ryle's mind, even as they saved his body. Sometimes Ryle would turn his head unexpectedly as Hoffman entered a room, or when he was at his most hopeless, Ryle would sometimes place a clawed hand on the shoulder of his walking frame, as if to quietly reassure him that he was still a person, to reassure him there was still some fragment of Ryle hidden within the mass of undead flesh and mechanical parts that now housed his mind. But it was a lie. It had been him all along, subconsciously controlling Ryle like a puppet to assuage his own guilt at surviving the accident. He didn't want to lose the only family he had left, so instead, he had created a puppet out of his brother's remains to comfort himself. Essie had been right when she had first seen the photograph of Ryle in her cell. He was no better than a resurrectionist. Anna watched dispassionately as Ryle stood there, pointing the barrel of his gun arm harmlessly at his brother. Useless, she sighed, shaking her head. You really did turn him into something pathetic, Charles. It would have been better if my device had killed him. Her brow furrowed as she considered something. It killed you both, really. The comment snapped Hoffman out of his spiraling thoughts. Device. Device. What do you mean? His accident traveling through the breach? Anna smiled, but it was as cold as steel. You never figured it out, did you? I flirted with him at the train station. He didn't even remember me. I think that hurt more than anything else. After everything he stole from me, he didn't even remember my face. Hoffman clumped toward her, his hands once again clenched at his side. What device, Anna? What did you do? She splayed her fingers out in front of her, as if to look at her nails. I slipped an etheric resonator into his pocket. Just a little thing, perfectly harmless until you cross over into another dimension. Then it gathers all the etheric energy and releases it in a build-up of electrical energy and... She blinked, her attention drifting to Charles. Well, you were there. You tell me what happened. I see. A pause. I'm going to kill you, Anna. His words were carefully measured, focusing his anger like a blowtorch. He no longer needed to figure out how to safely disarm the dress. Now he just needed to break it. That was much, much easier. Anna tilted her head. You are unarmed, Charles. What is it that you think... 
Her words were lost in the booming thrum that suddenly welled out from the machinery in her dress. She looked down, eyes wide as the plates in her skirt began to accelerate of their own volition. The air around her began to shimmer and distort, and Hoffman spared a thought to march his brother, no, the thing that had once been his brother, out of the way. He felt a bizarre vertigo in the air as the gravity around them fluctuated, and he closed his eyes to keep his concentration. He poured every ounce of his anger, his hatred, into the machine, flipping safety switches and redundant power controls open like latches on a suitcase. Anna's outline blurred and shook as she spun, trapped within the dress as the gravity well around her, the one that the dress's safety systems had been designed to protect her against, pulled her in every direction. The floor of the landship buckled beneath them, groaning as the metal distorted beneath the force of the energies being unleashed above them. Once again, books, tools and furniture were yanked through the air toward her with splintering force, and a cyclone of air howled around her as it picked up ash and dust. This is for my brother, Hoffman shouted into the screaming blur that had once been Anna Lovelace. Screws and bolts joined the whipping cyclone as they tore away from the dress, and Hoffman caught a glimpse of Anna's eyes, which were full of pure reptilian hatred. Through a great force of will, Anna grabbed hold of her left arm, forcing it back against her own stomach as she glared down at Hoffman. This isn't over, she shouted, before clicking open a latch on the wrist. Hoffman had sensed the concealed blade in the dress's arm and deemed it mundane and uninteresting, and it was, from a purely mechanical viewpoint. As the blade sprung out from its sheath and pierced Anna's stomach, however, he caught a glimpse of magical runes flaring to life along its edge. One moment Anna was in front of him, and then there was a flash of yellow light and she was gone, as if magically whisked away to someplace else. Without the machinery to power it, the suspended objects fell to the ground in a great clatter. Hoffman winced as his ears popped, and when it was clear that it was over, he stomped closer and peered up at the space where she had hung a moment earlier. Magical blade, he murmured mentally cursing at himself for not considering the possibility that the blade had been enchanted. He had watched her summon spirits to attack his attendant. He should have known that she might have worked something similar into her dress. He had a consuming urge to beat his fists against the wall and scream until he was hoarse. But instead, he just hung his head and motioned to Ryle. Fetch Miss Sitch, he commanded. His slow, heavy footsteps taking him in the direction of the hatch. He could sense the constructs waiting outside. They had dispatched the rest of the undead abominations. One of the guardians and the hunter had fallen, he noted, more out of habit than any conscious thought, and the peacekeeper would need some significant repairs. But they had won the day. As Ryle's footsteps joined his own, and he looked into the shocked, dead face of Esther Sitch, however, he didn't feel like much of a winner. In fact, he felt as if he had lost everything. Lucius Mattison had vanished from his office for a few days. The situation unfolding between Lilith and the return to Tania was certainly full of opportunities and possibilities, but both of them required no end of assurances that he was on their side and theirs alone. He enjoyed the little subtleties of his performances. 
It thrilled Lucius to watch Lilith try and work out just what sort of Neverborn he was whenever they met, and he always made certain to drop a few clues to lead her mind down the wrong path. He knew that it aggravated her, but she was too proud to admit that she didn't know, and he was enjoying the game too much to spoil it for her. It had almost been too easy to bait her this last time. She was distracted, and seemed to want little more than repeated pledges of his loyalty. He lied, as he always did, assuring her that he was loyal to her and her alone. Titania was an entirely different challenge. She knew what he was, or at the very least suspected, but she didn't yet know just how dangerous or crafty he actually was. Similarly, however, he was still in the process of feeling her out and seeing which of her weaknesses could be exploited, which was exhilarating in and of itself. In contrast to the subtle manipulations of these two powerful women, the thought of dealing with the new governor-general was almost enough to bore him to a yawn. He had provided a bit of amusement in arriving early. Lucius had returned to the city to find the courthouse closed and the holding yards emptied out. But that was only a minor inconvenience the discordant sounds that were to be expected whenever one first picked up a new instrument. As he strode into the governor's manor, he debated just how long it would take to bring the new governor-general into line. His head would already be swimming in stories and rumours about Malifaux, of course, just as the last one had been. This time, however, he would arrive and see the effect that Lucius' name had upon his staff and officers. Their first private meeting private but for Lucius' scribe, would see him assessed and the first tuning conducted. There would be another private meeting each day to refine his understanding of the instrument, and ten days from now, Lucius would be playing the new governor-general like the Stradivarius he kept locked in his quarters. It was all so mundane and droll that he barely found it interesting. It was fortunate that... Sir? Lucius froze as the guardsman dared to step in front of him. He immediately committed the man's face to memory. He knew exactly who he was sending out along the western wall during the next hunter's moon. Lilith could owe him a favour for sending her ever-hungry children a snack. When it became clear that Lucius wasn't going to comment, another guardsman stepped forward and took the first by the arm. "'That's Secretary Madison,' he whispered, pulling the first man aside. "'He's on the list.' The first guardsman's face lit up in understanding as he looked Lucius up and down. Lucius, who had a cat's loathing of indignity, submitted to this with silent, fuming contempt. "'Jolly good, then, sir. My instructions are to direct you straight to the Crown Room. His Excellency is expecting you there.' "'I shall be delighted to meet His Excellency's expectations,' replied Lucius. "'As should we all.' "'This way, sir.' The guardsman motioned for Lucius to follow him, and he fell into step behind the loathsome man, despite being able to navigate his way around the mansion blindfolded. There were more people milling about the mansion that he didn't recognize. Lucius got one or two curious looks, but no salutes, no doffed caps or nervous wishes of a good day. The only familiar faces he saw were on a handful of non-commissioned officers, clattering grim face down the stairs while pulling on caps and gloves, and two teams of specialists fussing over the wall sconces. Lucius had ensured that the mansion's sconces were filled with candles and old-fashioned lamps. He liked shadow. The new lamps were electric, bright, angular things that fully illuminated each room. Lucius paused in the brisk white glow of one, glancing up at it, and then moved on. 
They stopped outside the doors of the crown room, his escort stepping aside to allow him admittance. Lucius had always favoured the crown room. Inside, the room boasted a high ceiling, a roaring fire, and deep armchairs. Tall, stained-glass windows at the end of the room admitted tinted light, but offered no view of the outside world, and even the light that entered was dimmed by the heavy, overhanging eaves beyond. He had taken many meetings with the previous Governor-General in there. It was only fitting that he and the man's replacement would sit together for the first time in the same room. It had the trappings of a ritual to it, and there was strength in such things. He stepped to the double doors and pushed them open. A dozen faces turned and looked at him. A voice barked out from the end of the long, paper-scattered conference table under its bright electric lights. Who's that, then? Ah, Madison, is it? Good, come in. There's a spot for you at the end there. You see it? Edward, place the secretary's papers there for him, will you? Lucius glided into the room, more cat-like than ever now his guard was up. Your Excellency, you are not expected until next week. I had anticipated that we would meet in private to begin our work. If you'll just allow me a short moment to make the arrangements. <clears throat> Unfortunately, you missed the meeting I scheduled with your office two days ago. Nobody seemed to know where to find you or when you would be back. Terribly unprofessional, that. Governor-General Franco Marlowe stood up from the head of the table and approached him. He was a little below medium height, wiry and compact, with a face as sharp as a hawk's, and a dark-eyed gaze that was just as fierce. His deep brown skin was weather-beaten and lined, and the lines were not kind ones. His glossy black hair, dusted grey at the temples, was pulled straight back from his head into a ponytail. He gripped Lucia's hand and shook it without smiling. I'm glad that I arrived early, for if I hadn't, who would have been running the city in your absence the past few days? I... No time to waste, Madison. Come and get caught up. Marlowe stalked back to his seat. You heard what happened to London? San Francisco? Relations with Constantinople? Things are going to hell earthside ever since that blasted Burning Man showed up. A strong, stable Malifaux settlement is more important than ever. He pulled his chair up to the table, then glared at Lucius. Sit, Madison, sit. Don't worry, my staff are perfectly polite to bureaucrats when I remind them to be. A dutiful murmur of laughter went around the table. Your staff, Your Excellency? My personal staff. You might have noticed one or two of them about. Another dutiful laugh from the table. Lucius slowly sank down into the chair. It was one he recognized. He had had it shipped from Earth as part of a set that had furnished a dining room elsewhere in the mansion the dining room where he'd been in the habit of meeting with his staff. A sheaf of papers was put on the table in front of him. Lucius stared at them, pushed them aside as he leaned forward and spoke to Marlow in a firm voice. He had to reassert his control. Shall we begin with a matter of pressing concern? Charles Hoffman, tasked with overseeing the Guild's constructs, has become insubordinate and has taken to using Guild resources for his own personal goals. He paused for effect, but he found that it was not the effect he intended. Charles Hoffman, Marlowe's eyebrows raised in disbelief. Without him, the Guild might have fallen apart these past two months. While you were off gallivanting who knows where and wasting Guild resources on rounding up and executing every Union worker you can find, and we will certainly be touching upon that bit of bad decision-making in this meeting, 
Charles Hoffman was making sure actual work got done. The Governor-General paused. The effect was far more chilling. On to legitimate business, Marlowe continued. We've been hearing about this mess with Ridley that you've caused, Madison, and coming up with ideas on how to deal with the council there and get them back on friendly terms. You and my predecessor really fouled up this whole union situation from the start. But what's done is done, I suppose. He turned a page, scanning ahead on his agenda. After that, Benecki is going to brief us on the recent battle between that mob of walking corpses and, oh, for the love of, do you really call them death marshals? Whose brilliant idea was that? Governor General Marlowe looked up from his paperwork and scowled. Are you really going to wear that blasted mask for the whole meeting, Madison? Lucius snapped the pen he had picked up in two. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.